Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Ron Granary, professor of history at the Department of National Security and Strategy at the U.S. Army War College and podcast editor of The War Room. It's a pleasure to have you with us. The Army and the Joint Force have recently expanded multi-component units, or MCUs, over the past five years to conserve limited manpower and to improve total force readiness. These units bring together service members from across the services and can include both regular and reserve components, creating both opportunities for synergy and special challenges for integration. Our guests today have come to discuss those challenges and possibilities of organizing and serving in an MCU. They are both members of the U.S. Army War College Class of 2020. Colonel Darren Buss, an active duty member of the regular Army, integrated U.S. Army Reserve personnel into 18th Airborne Corps Headquarters pilot MCU program from 2015 to 2016. He was also the Deputy Director for Future Operations from 2013 to 2017, including time in Afghanistan and then in Korea until 2019. Conversely, Lieutenant Colonel Rick Geruso, a troop program unit member of the U.S. Army Reserve, served as a member of U.S. Transportation Command's Joint Enabling Capabilities Command, or JEC, from September 2015 to May 2018, and then as a battalion commander with the 167th Combat Sustainment Support Battalion. Both of them have extensive experience on this question and have come to explain both the meaning of MCUs and their possibilities for the future. We are delighted to have them with us. Welcome to A Better Peace, gentlemen. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us, Ron. Great. It's great to be here with you. So I want to start by asking this question about uh, total force policy, which is a phrase that's associated with the creation of MCUs. What is it and why does the Army and the Joint Force use it? Darren, I'm going to go to you first. So the total force policy is really a means when the Army looks at it, and the joint force larger too, but looks at all the different components of soldiers, sailors, airmen, and marine, and how we need to use them all to meet our mission, not just our active duty component, but our reserve component, which includes the National Guard as well. So it's how we bring all those forces to bear. It's not just the active duty to meet our missions. And sometimes right. that's all in different units. Sometimes it's in the same unit. And Rick, what's your experience with total force policy? Uh, total force policy for uh, me, really, you know, you, you study, I studied it as part of my strategic research project. You know, and it came out of a decision for the United States Army after we emerged from Vietnam and mm -hmm. stood up an all-volunteer force. We got rid of the draft. So right. the Army took a look at how they were going to get things done. How were they going to accomplish the mission with this volunteer force? And total force was really all about how do we integrate the different compos, as they call them, compositions of the unit, active, reserve, and National Guard 
to be able to get the, the job done. And one of the outcomes of that is we now have about 53% of the army is comprised of reserve component. Mm-hmm. Well, and this actually gets to a, an interesting question because I'm thinking when when the decision was made to go to the all-volunteer force in 1973 after a long discussion and certainly uh, corresponding with the end of the Vietnam conflict, the uh, the armed forces had the advantage then of for the next decade and a half of being largely peacetime forces with few combat deployments. Um, since 1990, however, one could argue that the uh, U.S. armed forces, even with the all volunteer force have been uh, have been deployed with sort of increasing frequency. I guess we could put it to put it mildly. And so, has the total force policy has the concept held up uh, under the pressure of the uh, extensive deployments that we've experienced, especially since September eleventh, two thousand and one? This is Darren. Yeah, I think it has. Mm-hmm. I think that the the Reserve components realized after the end of the 1980s and Desert Storm that we, they needed to shift. We needed them to shift from a strategic reserve to an operational reserve, and that really mm-hmm. is what it's been. And as the active component reduced in size throughout the 90s, the reserve component continued to share more of the burden, but more from an operational perspective than from a strategic role, and that just accelerated even after 2001 with the war on terror and operations in Iraq and Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. And Rick, has that been your experience too, as a member of the reserve component? Yes. One of the, uh, the areas I'm most familiar with is as a logistics officer in the the army reserve, you know, I mentioned 53% of the reserve component, uh, is makes up the United States army. Mm. However, when you get to certain specialties and logistics is one of them, you find that those percentages are much higher, uh, 80% or more uh, in logistics, depending on what type of logistics units you're talking about. So the active army finds it very difficult to be able to go anywhere and do anything without the reserve component. So total force policy has really joined us at the hip. Mm -hmm. And what Darren was referring to in terms of the operalization of the uh, reserve component has put on some additional stresses for employers, soldiers, uh, families, and units. So it, it's been difficult. Right. Um, so, and going back to you, Darren, because I'm thinking about this too, is when we talk about MCUs, right, they are, uh, they can be multi-component from a joint force perspective, and they can be multi-component in the regular slash reserve uh, aspect. And the question is, what kind of different challenges exist when you're talking about creating an MCU with members of the different armed forces, the different services, versus with uh, when you're trying to merge regular and reserve components? So once you throw a joint flavor and requirement mm-hmm. onto it, it makes it a little bit more difficult because not only do different components have different policies and authorizations, but so do the different services. Mm-hmm. It's not really my perfect area of expertise. I think Rick could probably speak a little bit more to serving on a joint multi-component unit, but okay. from an army perspective and an army headquarters, a active duty unit that integrated reserve components, there were still challenges that both the active duty team and the reserve component team had to figure out. I gotcha. And Rick, what would you like to add to that? Yeah. From my experience with the JEC, uh, certainly those administrative actions uh, like pay and personnel actions, evaluations, those kinds of things were, were all handled by the service component 
uh, aspect of the unit. So we had what were termed these uh, Army Reserve element or Marine Corps Reserve element, whatever the the service, and they took care of those kinds of things and let the unit focus on the operational aspects of getting people out the door, trained and ready to do, do the job that needed to be done. As a as a headquarters question, and a, uh, this is going to be a very uh, civilian non-combat arms question, but I am just basically curious. If I'm in the uh, in in a, serving in an MCU, uh, uh, who signs my paychecks? You know, who am I working for? Do, am I still sort of am I working for the service that sends me? Um, and it's just that that somehow each one is working its own uh, 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 bookkeeping aspects. Or how does that how does that change my day to day experience? I guess as a as a soldier, um, as a sailor, as an airman, or does yes, it make you're no talking about that. You're thinking about that exactly right. You know, <laughs> I went to the, the Joint Enabling Capabilities Command as an Army officer. I happen right. to also be a reserve officer, but I was paid by the Army's personnel system. Mm-hmm. So I was essentially on loan to a joint unit from the Army I see. Is, a, is a way to think about it. Mm-hmm. And that happens both between reserve and regular, but also between the services in that kind of situation? Like Correct. If, I, if I'm, a, you know, Okay. So, uh, so the bookkeeping is kind of complicated in the, somebody is balancing, figuring out who is officially working for whom at which time. Correct. The other aspect of that is how do you integrate these soldiers and airmen and Marines into, uh, one unit and the onboarding process at the uh, joint enabling capabilities command was extremely well thought out and worked very, very well. And they had, everybody who shows up there at the unit had a week-long orientation, and then we were all trained as uh, joint planners uh, collectively before we were given the green light to be able to go out and do the mission. Just to highlight the the challenges, the pay is one thing. You're still paid by your service, but it's also sure. some of the entitlements that you might need. For example, at the 18th Airborne Corps, when we had reserve officers coming in, the status they came in on, they, a lot of them were traveling from all around the country. And when you live at Fort Bragg, you have a house and you can go home. When you don't, you have to find a place to stay. What type of entitlements do you get? Where do you live? How do you travel there? So there's all this type of other in, uh, pay and entitlements that these reserve components officers normally have to deal with when they're going somewhere and having to travel to go do their training not not even just deploying, but just training as well. Sure. Well, and I am curious, what is the difference uh, in the day-to-day experience of serving in an MCU versus serving in a joint billet uh, in, a, in a typical, when I think of a typical joint billet, someone being at the Pentagon or being at some uh, uh, combatant command, uh, a joint billet? Is it, uh, where where is the where's the dividing line between those two things yeah frankly i'll tell you that the uh the dividing line is really in the individual's head more so than it is anything else because once you you make that mental leap uh to to be able to figure out what needs to be done on the administrative side what uniform you're actually wearing makes no difference mm-hmm. i mean mm-hmm. it, it, that you were I can speak from my personal experience that I was very uniform conscious when I showed up in my first joint billet at the Jack, mm-hmm. um, because I'd never had an opportunity to work with Navy or Marine Corps personnel to any great extent at all. Um, 
once I was there for a little while, I, I sometimes I couldn't even tell you what service they were in, and they were wearing the uniform. <laughs> Interesting. So <laughs> that's, that, that's the, that's I'm the goal. I'm talking about that's Mike, the... and I can't remember. Was he? I, I think he's a Navy guy. You know. <laughs> so, you, but I knew him as a J five planner. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's the goal, right? In any joint yeah. uh, operation, is you want everybody only to see uh, everybody's supposed to only see purple, right? Exactly. And Darren, what's your what's your stats there? Yeah, even if it's a green team, you know, it's still part of you're all part of the same team. Some of mm-hmm. you might be there every day, and that's your full time job. Other members of the team might come in for certain training or exercises, but then when you have to go deploy. You're all part of the same team, and it's getting everybody on that same team. For an example, 18th Airborne Corps is an airborne unit. So part of the drill training for the team members, the reserve component members that came was we wanted to make sure that they could get their airborne status and get their jumps and their jump pay. So we had to work different training schedules, qualifications to make sure they were just as member, uh, much of a member of the team and getting that pay and entitlements as the active duty component members that were there every day. Mm-hmm. And so is the, the, the big moment, I guess, what makes an MCU an MCU is when it is deployed, I guess. So this is what I'm trying to think about, you know, as opposed to a, a work a day, uh, a yeah. joint, um, office. Yeah. And so it's, it's the, it's, it's so, deployment that makes the difference. So, so the reason that the army several years ago converted all the division, active duty division headquarters and active duty core header headquarters to a MCU construct was because coming out of the the Budget Control Act of 2011 and sequestration, there was a personnel cut that the active duty headquarters had to take, about 25%. So Mm -hmm. what the reserve component was able to do as part of the total army policy was to provide some additional capacity, maybe not new skill sets, but just capacity to prevent a full effective 25% cut. But those reserve component members on the staff are now in what we call the main command post operational detachment. So it is mm-hmm. basically the, the bench, if you will, for the main headquarters that when a deployment and an operation happens with appropriate notification and planning, those reserve component members get mobilized and join the active component portion of the headquarters throughout that deployment and duration. The mm-hmm. challenge remains afterwards, though, is you still have different deployment dwell times and mobilization timelines for those reserve component soldiers. So you have to manage, uh, the unit has to manage how long and how frequently they are mobilized for operations. Right. And what is, what is in general, when we talk about the, the time frame for a reserve component unit to be mobilized to participate in an MCU, how much time would they be given? So ideally, they're trying to schedule and notify this about 270 days out. You okay. figure, yeah, most of the, the reserve component have a full-time job, and some of them don't live in the immediate vicinity, so that coordination. So it generally follows the same type of guidelines for mobilizing a, a reserve component unit as well. It can mm-hmm. be done shorter and and the unit can operate for periods of time without those mobilized reserve officers, uh, reserve soldiers, but it adds the capacity and the depth uh, and it can't be guaranteed if you're trying to activate and mobilize that unit within a shorter time period. 
Right. And Rick, your experience as a reserve officer, uh, what's the shortest time period you ever had to uh, mobilize for, for a deployment? Yeah, my experience is much uh, on the other end of the spectrum than Darren's. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the JEC, we typically have what we call a joint alert force. It's a group of officers, planners that uh, have been trained up and are ready to go out the door for missions within 72 hours of, mo- of notification hmm. anywhere in the world. And I, in fact, had, had been uh, received the phone call and said, hey, can you do this? And I said, yes, and went out the door. And two days later, I was in Stuttgart, Germany um, hmm. or Hawaii or wherever we were going that time um, to work with a combatant command and a, on a planning term. Well, it- well, is that like, is it like being a firefighter that you know when you're on call or are you always on call? Yes. It, you know when you're on call. So these uh, joint alert force, they lasted 90 days. So okay. we did them you know, once a quarter. And if you happen to be on that quarter's joint alert, alert force, you were then prepared to drop what you're doing at work, mm-hmm. your civilian job, and grab your stuff and go. The other thing that the Jack did, just to give you an idea how much we thought about this, is every single person who shows up uh, as a member of the team at the Jack there, they are giving given a whole nother issue of organizational clothing and individual equipment. So you can always keep it packed? Well, it's always there at the Jack, and if they need to get you out the door, they'll have you get uh, get on an airplane in Los Angeles to go wherever you need to go, and they say, your equipment will show up and meet you wherever you're going. Oh, interesting. So they, so they really, so you, and you know, this means you as the officer, your family, your employer, whoever that is, they, this is all baked into their experience that every 90 days you will be, or at least once a quarter, you'll be in this kind of situation. Correct. And for the reserve component personnel that once they were trained up and they were green, like Darren is talking about, you've got to do all the pre-training stuff. But once they're green, so to speak, able to do the, the job, um, the expectation was that we would sign up for the, jet, for the joint alert force uh, 90 days out of a year. So one quarter, once a quarter. Right. And of course, you... you, you Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Darren. I, was gonna, I think Rick's experience just highlights some of the scale and scope of this. Uh, you know, his experience is at a smaller, tailored organization that's made for that. And as you expand that to a larger scope with these larger army headquarters, it's more people and it's a little harder. Not saying that those authorities and rules can't be looked at and adjusted if required, but there are consequences when you're trying to recruit and retain a reserve component element to meet that high level of operational tempo that might not be able to be done at that big of a scale. Sure. Cause I mean, the, the whole appeal of being in the reserve is that you actually get to have a civilian job and life while you're in between deployments. And so the idea that you're making that sort of commitment, it is an interesting in between place for a reserve officer to be. And I, I guess I'm, I'm curious too, then we think about this is when we think about how, how well MCUs have functioned up to now. Um, do do either of you have uh, thoughts about how, if at all, the MCU process could or should be modified or further developed to make it more effective? I'll, I'll take a stab at that one go ahead, first. Man. You go first. So yeah, so, so I, I will say that the version 
of the MCU that I experienced was the pilot program. It, it evolved a little bit since my experience, so I don't have direct experience since then. But I do know that the Rand Corporation about a year ago published a mm-hmm. study as to the effectiveness. And a, almost about a year ago, the Center for Army Lessons Learned published a handbook for commanders as to how to integrate and employ and prepare MCU headquarters as it's kind of a newer thing that we've been learning. I Mm -hmm. think that the program, it saved and was able to retain some capacity that had we had the active duty component just lost those spots, it wouldn't be there. So you at least have members that you can train and integrate and plan on integrating better. So, so it does gives you that bench. Is it mm-hmm. perfect or is it ideal? No, but it's, it's still a good way to go forward. And it shares that there are risks and challenges of each, but with some training and coordination, you can overcome some of those, whether we can sustain it in the future, or whether there's other changes is something we'll have to see as force structure continues to go forward into the, into the coming decades. And sure. Ron, I'd just like to uh, point out to listeners that, what we're really getting talking about here is how do you access the reserve component? Mm-hmm. Um, either, uh, you know, the traditional ways has been, you know, full mobilization, think World War II, right. or a partial mobilization. You know, we've seen those in the past, but recently uh, Congress has changed um, the law through the National Defense Authorization Act of uh, in, in 2012 and added two additional activation authorities. The first one is the activation for reservists up to 120 days to respond to disasters. We're mm-hmm. all familiar. We're seeing that right now. Absolutely. Uh, and the second one is to permit the activation of reservists for up to one year for pre-planned missions in support of a combatant command. So that has given the uh, the service a lot of latitude and how they can access the Army Reserves. I see. Uh, and, not and just the, the army, but all the forces. But all the forces. And so that means that if if uh, if one signs up for the reserves, then one realizes that you, you could get that one-year deployment uh, depending on the pre-planned operation. That is correct. And mm-hmm. what we do, and I'll talk about it from a battalion commander's uh, point of view, is mm-hmm. typically when you're serving a pre-planned mission like my battalion did, we had a... Uh, basically had a manning document that we had to fill and we knew well and ahead, well ahead of time, like Darren was saying, uh, you know, it was 180 days out at least or more. And they needed so many people of these uh, different specialties and rank to be able to go to support U.S. Central Command for a mission period for a year. And we would typically get people from all from different units rather than just send one unit. So you create another unit to be able to go out the door to be able to do that mission. So that means because any individual unit might not be able to send all of its people. Is that Correct. The part of the problem? And so, so what you're talking about then is not just uh, sort of integrating a reserve unit with a regular unit. It also means that you're, you're pulling together reserves from multiple units and experiences. So they got to get to know each other first, too. Right. From my perspective, we were pulling uh, people from both within my battalion and from outside the battalion reservist and creating another unit and then sending them out the door to support the uh, active army in the Joint Special Operations Command. 
And how long did they have a chance to get to know each other before they were sent to go when, with those reservists once they were all pulled into one place? Did they, they did they meet each other at the airport and then no. uh, on their way? No, no they had a they had an opportunity to train together and to go through all the uh, the pre training and the the requirements necessary to deploy overseas um, based on the JSOC and CENTCOM's requirements. I got gotcha. you. We made sure they had that that opportunity. I, sure. I think. I- that's something to highlight here too, is even the active duty forces army will individually deploy personnel and send them mm-hmm. through pre-deployment training to go augment or support already forward deployed headquarters and round out those headquarters. I also think it's worth noting, not an area of my expertise, but different services mm-hmm. have different roles and means by which they employ the reserve forces. The army, we like to try to do it more of a unit based, but the air force, for example, can kind of do is it onesie twosie specialty skill type of uh, more more the line along the lines of what Rick was talking about. So even as you look at the res- how different services use their reserve forces, plays into the the system. Right. So so it can be a matter of what specialties are needed uh, and what specialties uh, who is available with that specialty. Yep, that's yes. correct. No. You know, I think the the reserve component uh, can add value to the uh, joint force in, in unique ways, you know, and these mixed compo units are continuing to evolve. And that's mm-hmm. just one way that we can continue to do that. Sure. Well, and I am curious, since both of you then came to the War College with your experience with the with the MCUs from even from your different perspectives, but certainly with perhaps more familiarity with these with this whole concept than a lot of the officers that you have met um, as fellow students at the War College. And so do you feel as though um, your your fellow officers, like did, did, did you feel as though you had a, a lot to teach your fellow officers about the existence and the uh, experience of MCUs? Or have you met a lot of, of fellow officers while here at the War College who have also happened to have experience with them? From my perspective, mm-hmm. there is not as much experience among the active duty army officers. Uh-huh. The uh-huh. National Guard officer in my seminar and and like Rick here, we, they have more experience because they've been living it. The sure. active duty is, I think, getting more exposure to it now that the multi-compo units are at the division and core level. If they haven't, as they move out from here, active duty officers might get more exposure, but many had not had a whole lot of MCU experience that I know gotcha. of. Yeah. And I would concur with that. I mean, that's been my experience uh, within my seminar as well. Um, but I, I also had the opportunity to share my experience with my fellow officers in the, in the seminar uh, that I had at the Jack as well. So can I ask what are, what are you guys, uh, the, what are the two of you looking to do after the completion of your studies at the War College? Do you know what your next assignments are going to be? Can you say? Yeah. yeah. I, uh, Go ahead, Rick. I'm going to the, uh, the joint staff um, ah. in the Army Reserve element as a, uh, a joint 3-5 uh, planner, plans and operations. Oh. Outstanding. And Darren? And- I am scheduled to go down to U.S. Army Central Command to be the director of aviation operations for them, stationed out of Shaw Air Force Base. Wonderful. So both of you will have be, be able to draw on your previous uh, joint and MCU experience uh, as you move up, as we like to say, for our War College graduates to the strategic level. Exactly. Definitely. I know Central U.S. Army Central Command uses 
reserve forces, aviation forces over there as well. So do think my experience and research will help me out. Well, great. Well, and I'm delighted that you were able both to share your research and your experience with the listeners of A Better Peace. We are about out of time for today, but I want to thank Darren Buss and Rick Jerusso for joining us today for this conversation. And I want to thank all of you for listening in. Please send us your comments on this program and all the programs. Send us suggestions for future discussions. We're always interested in hearing from you. Um, So with thanks to Darren Buss and Rick Jerusso, until next time. From the War Room, I'm Ron Granary. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.